you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our service today. I want to thank, again, those of you who are joining us in person. Thank those of you who are joining us online, whether live in person, live online, or watching or listening. Watching? It's not a word. Uh, watching or listening uh, at some point during the week. Uh, we're so grateful that you are part of our time together here. So um, we're excited to be able to be here again. We thank you for uh, our veterans who served and be able to allow us to have an opportunity to express our gratitude um, just a little bit in our service earlier. And we are in a series where we are talking about a generous life. And today specifically, we're talking about a wholehearted life, not a life that's fractured or divided, not a life that is, um, has multiple foci, focuses, uh, but to be able to have a singular focus, a specific goal. And we've been going through the series for the past few weeks, and in this series, uh, I you know, there's an idea where sometimes pastors or preachers feel like they have to, like, apologize when we're going to talk about money. Like, I'm not apologizing about talking about money, but I am signaling we are talking about money today. In this series, we've looked at the past few weeks. The first week, we talked about how we're called to live a blessed life, but that the blessing is not specifically and only relating to our money, that it's not just physical or financial or material blessings, that we think that when we hear the word blessing. But in reality, as we look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, there were lists of blessings that we are able to be called children of God, that we've been redeemed for our sins, that we have forgiveness for our sins, that we have unity in, with one another, we have knowledge in Christ, that we've been chosen into adoption. I mean, the blessings we receive from Jesus are far more than any financial. And to be honest, you don't see... Uh, our financial blessings are things we cannot take with us. What we receive from Jesus, no one can take from us. And so as we have these moments in which we look at what our lives look like when it comes to being generous, we're, we talked about blessing. Last week we talked about serving in the least of these passages in which People did give physical things like food when someone was hungry and drink when someone was thirsty and clothes when someone was naked. But it wasn't just about that. We also saw our calling to relational ministry. The fact that you visit someone while they're in prison or you minister to someone while in the hospital and that you open up your home to welcome strangers in. So it's physical, material, financial, yes. It's also relational, personal with our time. So it's looking at both of those, but like I signaled as we started this sermon series, we are going to spend some time looking at finances and at money, and that's today's sermon. And so today's going to be a little different. Um, what we're going to do is every once in a while, maybe, I don't know, a handful of times a year, three to four maybe, uh, I'll come. A, I'll have a few sermons in which I, instead of walking around and, and kind of moving about a bit, I, I kind of anchor myself to a chair in a seating teaching position, and we unpack some idea, core concepts, some scriptures, and then make some application. We're going to ask ourselves three questions. We're going to provide or see how Jesus provides, rather, see how Jesus provides various answers, and then see what it looks like to take what we learn and to apply it so that we can live a generous life, a wholehearted life. And so I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has for each and every one of us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who is part of our service today, whether that person is here live in person, whether it's live online, whether they are watching or listening later on. God, I thank you that um, each person who hears my voice is someone who is loved by you, someone that you created and formed and shaped, Someone that Jesus, you died for, and Holy Spirit, someone that uh, you want to draw closer to the Father today. So Lord, as we dive into your word, as we look at a topic and passages that might be a little uncomfortable for us, Lord, may we learn to lean into the discomfort. Not because we just, um, well, because Lord, we don't want to hide from what your word tells us and how we want to grow and live in honor of what your word says. So help us to... Um, 
Help us to receive what you have for each and every one of us. Meet us here. And Lord, I pray that if there are people who say, I came to church for the first time in forever, and he's talking about money, Lord, may you pave the way and go before us in that to remember that as we dive in, may you decrease, may I increase, may you speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us, Lord, so that it's your words and your message and your heart that we learn about today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 3 for a little bit. Our primary text will be in Matthew chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can uh, look for those. The nice thing is that Malachi and Matthew are actually books that are back-to-back together, so they're easy to find. But there's a 400-year gap in between them. Uh, But we recognize that um, we're going to look at those a little bit here and there. And here's what we're going to talk about this morning, this idea of a wholehearted life. A life that is without compromise, a life that is one in which our whole devotion is focused on who God is. And acknowledging with that, that part of why that's an important topic for us to look through is because how we view our money is one of the core things that Jesus, when he was here, laid out to say, hey, you can't serve both God and money. And we'll unpack that passage in a few moments. It's one of the things that we learn early on that in um, marriages, it's one of the top things that couples argue about, our finances. In business partnerships, that there have been friendships that have been dissolved and destroyed because of how people look at, view, and interact with money. When I do premarital counseling uh, for couples, um, there is a specific program I use, then there's a specific day that discusses finances, and what you do is you have them take a, um, uh, a quiz in how they view their money. And I thought to myself, man, it would be really cool to kind of interact in a sermon and, and to have you all take that quiz. But I'm like, let's be honest. Um, people don't always like hearing about money. People don't always want to have a pop quiz. So people definitely don't want to have a pop quiz about money. So um, we're going to, let me explain at least some of the four different ways. And it's not on the screen. This is just for us to be aware of as we enter into our topic this morning. That money, we all view money in a different way. There's four different options that we primarily will view it through. But is money in and of itself evil? No. It's the love of money that Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. The love of money is a sort, or excuse me, is a source of all kinds of evil. So money in of itself can be It's morally neutral, as we like to say. It's like a baseball bat that you could use to do something great, like play baseball. That was not a good illustration. Uh, But, you know, it's something you could do that. Or you could do it in a horrible way, like when we went to a a Dodgers game um, years ago, and um, Steph and I and a few friends of ours saw someone beating up a Cubs fan. As they were playing the Cubs, they were beating up a, a Cubs fan with a baseball bat. The bat in and of itself is not evil. It could be used for good. It could be used for bad. Money in and of itself is not evil. It can be used for good. And it can be used for bad. But here's how we view money. One of four ways. One, some of us view money as our security. We say, if I have a certain amount of money in my bank account, and whatever that arbitrary number is, we think as long as that's there, I feel at peace. You know, I feel okay. I feel like we can weather some storms. I feel like we can navigate economic downturns because there's security in our finances. And that can, the underlying truth or part of that is to think that, okay, well, um, money is what provides my security rather than the Lord providing that. Number two, maybe you're not a person who sees it as security. Maybe you see money as a sense of control. You think if I have enough money, I can control the circumstances around me. If things aren't working the way I want, maybe I can pay a little bit extra to make things go smoothly. Or it's more control of, this is, this is mine and I don't want anyone to touch it and it's, no one can do anything with it, so it's, it's control. And as long as I have control, then I feel like I'm at peace. So maybe for some of you, money is a source of control. Maybe you view money as a source of status. Where you look at it and you say, you know, I, even if I don't have a lot of money, I want people to think I have a lot of money. So you go and you buy out the newest iPhone whenever it comes out. You go and you buy a Tesla. You go and you have a certain house. And so you may be driving around a Tesla but eating top ramen because you don't have the money to sustain yourself. But it's important to you because you want people to see your status and say, oh, that person has it together. That person, oh, man, they they must be blessed. 
in the financial sense. Lastly, and most personally to me, so there's status, there's control, there's security. The one that I wrestle with and struggle with the most is money as enjoyment. Because Steph does an incredible job making meals and she plans them out and they're delicious, but I really enjoy eating out at restaurants. You know, like that's something that I'm like, if I have more money, if we have more money, I would like to eat out more. I'm like, I, I'll do the dishes, so, and now Shaylin's doing the dishes, and so for us, it's like, hey, if we go eat out, no one does the dishes, right? And so it's just acknowledging that, or we would love to go on trips more, or we would love to do something that is enjoyable. And so we think the more money we have, I, I should say, I think, the more money that we have, the more I can have fun. So there's no right or wrong, like all, we all can fall into one of, or maybe a couple of those different categories. So what does it look like then? If we understand beneath the surface what money and how we view it and what that looks like for us, then we can ask ourselves some questions and we can acknowledge going into a sermon like this that there will be tension because I'm going to say things like, hey, we are called to give back to God. And you might feel like, well, then I'm losing control. We might call and say things like, hey, we're called to give sacrificially to the Lord. You say, well, that, that lessens my security. Or that allows me so I can't have as much enjoyment or fun. And so calling things out early on and then acknowledging where we are with that will allow us to enter into the moments of tension that we are talking about today when we feel them. Pay attention. Is it because what money ultimately can reflect in you is that security, control, status, or enjoyment? Is there something deep down that's bothering you? And then which one of those threads, or which one of those options hits the thread that gets to the heart of the matter? So here's what we're going to talk about. You're like, but you've already been talking. Well, here's what we're going to talk about more. We're going to talk about the wholehearted life today. What is it like to give all of our heart, to love the Lord with all of our heart, our soul, mind, and strength? Because finances is not the only way but it is absolutely a vital way to love God wholeheartedly. We see that in scripture. We're going to uh, point into that in a few moments. So here's what we're going to do. Matthew 5, Jesus, when he says and he starts his public ministry, when he speaks to the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks to the people at the Sermon on the Mount, he starts off by talking about the um, the Beatitudes, and then he starts talking um, from Matthew chapter 5 about the importance of these are the ones who are truly blessed. But then he comes in because he's going to be around a group of people. He, he would assume a teaching position, which was the seated position, and he would teach to the people on the mountaintop. And as he's teaching them, they are talking about, like they would have a background with the, um, what we would call the Old Testament, what Hebrews would call scripture, the Hebrew scripture, and he unpacks something because he does something important that we need to look at. Matthew 5, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So the law is the Torah. The prophets is the Nephilim. And then there's the writings, which are the Ketuvim. Between the law, the prophets, and the writings. So the writings would be like the wisdom books. The prophets would be like the book of prophets. And the Torah are the first five books. That is the Tanakh, Torah, uh, Nephilim and the Ketuvim. Tanakh, that's a Hebrew scripture. So he's saying, I didn't come to abolish those things. I came to fulfill them. Whatever it was that it was calling us to do, what it was calling when God put the law and the prophets together, what he was calling us and how he was calling us to live, I'm not saying, hey, don't do those things anymore. I'm showing you to the utmost what it's like to do those things and how to live well. He came to fulfill them. Because this is what we're going to talk about, is this idea that Jesus will take an Old Testament teaching. He does this throughout um, the Sermon on the Mount specifically, but also throughout his ministry on earth. And he takes an Old Testament teaching, and he gets to the heart of the matter. The Pharisees and the people, they were notorious. The religious leaders were notorious for doing all the external things right but getting all of the internal things wrong. He calls them in Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful and whitewashed. It look great on the outside. You're dead on the inside. Our external things that we do, the, the check boxes that we do to follow God are not, that's not the be all end all of it. We can look good and still be dead spiritually inside. 
As one person said, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live, to bring us to life, life to the full. So he, he comes to the heart of the matter, and he takes us deeper than, than we're comfortable with. But he goes beyond the external. Here, let's give, me a couple, let's give a couple examples. Starting just a few verses later, uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. He has this section where in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it is said. And he gives some examples of teachings that they've heard. And then he shows them the heart of the matter. Let's just give two as an example. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You ever talk to someone who um, doesn't have a relationship with God? And, and honestly, because of that, they say, well, why do you focus on sin? Like, I'm, I'm a good person. What do they say? I haven't killed anybody. And that's the example because we think that is, the, you know, that is awful, and it is. But what does Jesus say? He says, the externals, you didn't murder anyone. Good. Have you ever been angry with someone? Have you ever murdered them in your heart by cutting them off or disregarding them or making them less valuable? Have you ever taken someone who was made in the image of God and destroyed that image in your own heart? I know I have. That is what subjects us to judgment. It's not saying just the external. It says inside. He gets to the heart of the matter. Hey, you look good. You didn't kill anyone. Awesome. Inside, your righteousness is still as filthy rags. Inside, internally, to the heart of the matter, if you're angry with someone, then that's the same as being subject to judgment for murder. Next example he gives, just a couple of verses later, it talks about this. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, okay, you haven't committed adultery. What about inside? Because if you've done that, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So see, Jesus gets to the heart of an Old Testament teaching. He says it cannot just be the external. He's got to go. He got to go. He has to go inside in order to say where is the, where's your soul? Where's your heart in this? See, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus shows us that we often underestimate our badness. We think, oh, I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done these things. It's like, well, but if you've done these things, you're, you're in trouble. So we, we, un, we overestimate, excuse me, we underestimate our badness. Matthew 6, we often overestimate our goodness. We say, well, I pray, I fast, I give, I do these good things. And he says, but that in and of itself is not enough. So in his opening sermon, he rattles some of the, 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 the Hebrew mindset of what it means to be righteous before God. He gets to the heart. It's not on the outside. It's what's inside that counts. So Let's take a couple moments. Let's take, take a step back. We got some examples from Matthew 5. What does the Old Testament say? We have three questions. My first question we unpacked this morning is, what does the Old Testament say about money? What does it teach us about money? Well, there's, I mean, obviously this is, the Old Testament is the vast majority of our scripture, so I'm not going to go all the way through it. Here's a couple of things we learned, though. Psalm 24.1 tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is everything in it. Everything you own has been given to you from God on loan. We'll hit on that next week as we talk what it means to be a steward. Everything you own has been given to you from God on loan. Everything you make, everything you create, was only allowed because it's either made out of physical materials that God has put on this earth, or that it is through the inspiration that God gives people to be able to create things and to make things. So, one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Two, we also learn that God calls us to give our first fruits, the, the first, the best. We don't give blemished sacrifices. Malachi 1, the, the people are in trouble because they give half-hearted sacrifices to God. God deserves our best, not our worst or our least. So we give God our first fruits. We give him the best. Number two, or number three, we look at the idea that Proverbs 30 shows us that we ought to pray 
that we don't have so little that we're so poor that we steal and dishonor God's name, but that we wouldn't have so much that we would get full and forget God. What does he say? Proverbs 30 talks about for us to have our daily bread. So we learn lots of things about God, but what does this tangibly, practically look like? We can look at the theoretical, not theoretical, but the, 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 the theological is the word I'm looking for there. But what about the practical? How did the Old Testament people, in, in, uh, the Jewish people in the Old Testament understand the teaching about money? They understood that there was to be a tithe to the temple, or in this case, the tabernacle, or ultimately to the Levites and the orphans, the widows, those who did not have their own land, therefore could not have their own crops, therefore they relied on the generosity of the people to be able to survive. We see this in Leviticus chapter 27. It says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy or set apart to the Lord. That a tenth, the first tenth, the best of your crops, the best of your produce, those would go directly to God. That they would be given as a tithe. The word tithe means tenth. And so a tenth of your produce and your crops go directly to the Lord. Now in that context, that means that it was brought to, again, the storehouse or to a temple or tabernacle to be given to the Levites, who are the priests, the clergy, as well as given to those who were poor and did not have their own land. So this is the understanding, and yet in the same way that we know the right, what we should do, and we know God's word and what it says, we practically often will fall short of that in how we live our lives. So Malachi 3, as we jump to that and just read a few verses together, here's what God says against the leaders of the people because of the withholding of tithes. He says, will a, uh, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You were under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Real quick, that comes from the covenant blessings that we see in Deuteronomy um, at the very end. It says, if you will follow me, here are all the blessings you'll experience. If you love me and obey my commands. And if you don't, here are all the curses that will happen. And so it's not just like God is arbitrarily saying, me no like you're doing this, I mean to you. It's saying you promised me, you had a covenant with me, that you would give the best of what you have to me. And because you didn't, there are ramifications for that decision. He's not a bully, but he's, a, he's seeing that there's been a treaty, a covenant that has been broken. So we continue on. Bring the whole tithe, the whole tenth, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, let me stop here for a couple of things. One, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse was the place where all the grain and all the produce was set aside so that when the time came, they'd be dispersing to the Levites, the clergy, as well as those who did not have land or could not work the land because of their poverty. So bring it to the storehouse. But then this is a verse that, let's be, if, if you've heard sermons on this before, there is a... Um, a very clear misunderstanding that can often happen. Because a pastor or a preacher may say something along the lines of, see what it says. It says, if you give to God, test me in this. It's the idea of like throwing down the gauntlet of saying, Let's, let me show you. But one of the dynamics is that we think, oh, he's, someone may say, if you give to God, he will bless you financially. This, this prosperity, this health, this wealth gospel, that is not the gospel. What does it say? This says that if you give, you test me in this, and you, the floodgates of heaven will pour out blessing. It doesn't mean that you give money to the church and then you're going to get a check in the mail. What it means is that when we give sacrificially, intentionally, and obediently and cheerfully, that you will receive blessings. What are the blessings? Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, remember we talked about it's being chosen, it's sonship, it's adoption, it's unity, it's knowledge, it's forgiveness, it's redemption. You will get not physical, material blessings every time you give. Can that come? Of course. There are times we've given and we see that provision on the other side. Yes, it happens. But it would be manipulative for me as a pastor to come up and say, well, see, it says you give and then you will get more money later on. 
And that's part of why when we hear sermons on money, there can, we can feel a little icky about it. You say, am I going to be coming in? Am I going to be manipulated? What is the goal behind this? What's going to happen? So we're going to unpack the fact that as we talk about a tithe, how important and how seriously I, we take that as a family, we take that as a church, and how that blesses the world around us. So let's continue on. If what the Old Testament teaches us about money is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, we don't want to have too much or too little, we want to give God our first fruits, and that we give cheerfully, sacrificially, and obediently to care for those who are unable to do so themselves. What's the heart of the matter? Because here's the thing. Jesus takes an Old Testament teaching. We saw it with murder. We saw it with adultery. He takes an Old Testament teaching when it comes to money now, and he gets to the heart of the matter. The first question is, what does Old Testament teach? Second question naturally says, well, what is the heart of the matter regarding our money? What's the heart of the matter on the screen of the matter? What's the heart of the matter regarding money? What is God seeing under the surface? What is Jesus calling to underneath what people see on the outside? They may see our security. They may see our enjoyment. They may see our status. They may see our control. But what is it underneath? And what role does money have underneath on the throne of our lives? What's the heart of the matter when it comes to money? Let's, Jesus, later in that Sermon on the Mount, we quoted from Matthew 5. Here's just the next chapter, Matthew 6. He says this. He talks about where we ought to store up our treasures. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's the heart of the matter? What you treasure shows where your heart is. You can give externally, but if you give and it's because you want to have status as a good giver, or you give because you want to control what people think of you, or you give because whatever it may be, the heart of the matter is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so there's a storehouse principle that um, connects Malachi 3 to Matthew 6. Because Malachi 3 tells us that the Israelites were called to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The physical location that was where the, the food and the produce would be dispersed. Jesus tells us that we ought to store our treasures not in a physical storehouse, but in heaven a place where things cannot be stolen and destroyed. There's a, me, Pastor Evan, and uh, Dennis Riley in 2018, we went to Ecuador. And some of you who are here with us know the story about when we went there. Um, Dennis had done just an incredible job getting some donations from people with clothes and shoes and trying to get that stuff together. And we arrived in Quito Airport. It was about midnight or so. And uh, we were getting into the car and there were... Um, there's a truck that had a bed that had a, a cover over it. We drove from Quito to where we needed to go. It was about a two-hour drive at midnight, late at night, uh, flying and traveling all day. And we stopped one time. There's one light on that whole trip for those two hours because it started off in the city a little bit. Then you stopped once, made a right, and then it was mountain roads the rest of the way. We put nine pieces of luggage in the, in the bed of the car, of the truck. The rest of the, you know, we have our carry-ons and everything. We're just sitting inside the cab. And as we're driving, someone, as we get past the mountain road, we start to see people honking. And, you know, we're tired. It's past midnight. You're in a foreign country. They must be inviting you to coffee, right? You're like, what's happening right now? Well, they let us know that our trunk was, the, the bed of the truck was open and that there was luggage that had fallen out. We found out that out of the nine pieces of luggage that were originally there, six of them were donations, and then three of them were, you know, me, Dennis, and Evan. It was our, um, our personal belongings. Six of them had been stolen. We stopped one time at a light. Someone got a knife and just cut open it, unhitched, uh, undid the latch, stole it, and it was like a smash and grab, like a pit stop in a NASCAR race. It was so fast, we didn't even know. 
We tried to go back, try to see if we could find it. Um, I, you know, we didn't end up finding those things. And so sadly, a lot of the donations were gone. Um, I bought like new jeans and stuff because my bag was one of the ones that got stolen. Now, we put things together in a way we thought were secure, but when a thief wants to steal, a thief can steal. And so do we want to put our value, our treasure in something, even if it feels secure to us here on earth, do we want to put it in a place or in such a way that someone can steal that which is most important to us? Think about what's most valuable to you. Do you leave it, you know, like you don't care where it is and you just leave it wherever you are? Or do you find a way to try to secure it? See, Jesus says where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. There is a link. The heart of the matter is that God knows that when it comes to finances, we would so much more likely try to find our treasure here on earth rather than our treasure with him in heaven that where we spend our money is a correlation to what we value most. And so then the question remains, what does that look like? So here we go. Let's look at this here. When it comes to this idea of what's been given. Whatever we have or use is made from God-given materials. We forget this so easily that God built a reminder into his program for his people, which is the tithe. A tenth of what they earn or grow or make is to be given to him. A symbol of, get this, their dependence on him. So you're not in control. I'm not in control. A token of their gratitude for what he has given. So, when it comes to tithes and offerings, that there is a covenant. His people broke it. They're holding on to their stuff. Maybe it was security. Maybe it was comfort. Maybe it was status. Maybe it was enjoyment. I don't know what you could enjoy in the Old Testament de- desert, but, you know, who knows. But it's recognized that maybe these things, it's like saying, hey, here's a way to make sure that we know we are always dependent upon him. Everything we have is his because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then we could show our gratitude. In the Old Testament, God instituted the tithe to do those two things. So let's look at the definition of a tithe. Let's go to the next slide. So what does that look like for the, Old Test- or for the New Testament, for us now? Because nowhere in the New Testament does it say you must continue to tithe. Jesus acknowledges the tithe in Matthew 23, 23, in that same section where he's giving the seven woes to the Pharisees and talks about how, you know, you do the outside looks great, but you are whitewashed tombs. You are, you are um, dead on the outside or on the inside. You look good on the outside. He also says this. He says, you have kept the tithe of your spices and your cumin and your mint, but you've neglected justice and mercy. And he said, what you should have done is kept the former, or excuse me, kept the latter, so dedicated yourself to mercy and justice, while not forgetting the former. So Jesus doesn't condemn the tithe. He also doesn't command it. So what does that mean? Well, when Jesus goes to the heart of a matter, remember he makes it richer, deeper, in a lot of ways harder. So if he gets to the heart of the matter of some senses and asks for more, should we look at the tithe and money and think, well, he's probably going to ask for less. Like, oh, that's just the, that's Old Testament. You don't need to do it. You don't need to be aware of it. Don't give sacrificially. Don't give to God first. But give him out of your leftovers rather than your best. And so instead, the idea is Jesus brings to the heart of the matter and then calls us to more deeper and richer and harder. So here's what it looks like here. Dave Ramsey says it this way when it comes to the tithe. So the general guideline, general guideline, this is not something where you tell us your income, we calculate the 10% of a tithe, we ask you to pledge those t- that 10%, and if you don't, we have our elders and our stewards chase you down. Like, that's not what this is, Right? We have an incredible team of stewards who've helped work together and put forth the budget and we've connected with ministry leaders and we look at what the budget looks like and they're, they're being great and wise and all of that. And so what we do is we recognize that the tithe, your generosity, is what allows us to do the ministry that God has called this church to do. But it starts, the general guideline, we're not doing pledges, we're not asking for this, we're not chasing you down is that for those of us who are evangelical Christians, our baseline for giving, this is, this is the standard we would like to set. 
is a tenth of our income. Off the top, remember the first fruits, the unblemished sacrifices, the best? Off the top, before you do anything, going to the local church. So let's, let's call out the, the elephant in the room here. I, as a pastor, am honored and humbled that I get to and our family gets to live off of your generosity. So this is not emotional manipulation. I don't get more commissions based on how many people tithe. It's pointing us to the fact that when it comes to your generosity, your tithes, there's two different types of giving. There's proactive giving, the kind of giving that says, I'm going to write my check no matter what, or make my donation, or do automatic or repeated um, statements of giving, because that's my tithe. That's just the 10% goes off the bat, right off the top. There's proactive giving. And then, like we learned with Gifts for Jesus, now there's reactive giving. There are ways for us to give over and above. So I acknowledge in our family, we, we take for, you know, we know that we're, I'm able to do what I'm able to do. In the same way that the Old Testament priests, the Levites, were able to not have land because of the generosity of the people, we recognize that we get to live off of the generosity of those of you who call Palmerado Christian Church your home. And we are so grateful for that. And we recognize that we, that train changes how we use our money. I don't get a paycheck and drive to Vegas, put it all on black, and be like, sweet, we got more enjoyment. We try to do our best as a household. But you know what else we do as a household? We give 10% off the bat before we do anything else to Pomerado Christian Church as our local church. If I couldn't say that, we tithe. If I couldn't say that with integrity, this would have been a lot more difficult of a sermon to preach. And it's acknowledging the fact that we used to give early in our marriage, we gave 10% of our income, but we split it up. We gave some to the church at my old church, some to different missionaries. We, we adjusted it that way. But then as we learn more about this, the idea is that we wanted to give 10% to our church. And any missionaries we support, because we would support different missionaries, uh, we support a, a child in Kenya, we, we support different things than we have in the past. But whenever finances get tight, we cut down on our offerings that are over and above, the church always gets our 10%. So I want to share what we preach, but also what we live, and say God calls us to recognize where we are with money, and then he'll put upon you. Maybe you're like, I can't do 10% right now. I can't. Maybe for you, it's starting with 1%. Just, it's starting with learning proactive giving before you know how ends are going to meet. Why? Because as a local pastor said recently, when we tithe, we trust that God will be more faithful with the 90% we have left than we would be with a full 100% on our own. It's saying God will provide. And me left to my own devices... It's just like a lot of Little Caesars crazy bread is what it is. And so that's not a wise investment. Not a wise investment for me or my family. So the general guideline, the, the baseline, the standard we would like to set is 10%. Maybe you're there, maybe you're not. We're not taking pledges. We're not hunting you down. This is not between me and you. This is where does God have our heart? Does he have our purse strings and our heart strings at the same time? So the next one is like, that's a tie. That's proactive. We give no matter what. Then there's reactive giving. Above the tithe in the scripture is considered, anything above the tithe, excuse me, is considered an offering. A tithe is off the top before you do anything. Offerings come from surplus. Offerings come from when um, something over and above, you get a bonus or you get a taxes come back, whatever it is. It's saying over and above, this is what you give an offering. I'm, saying, I'm just so grateful for what God has done. I know I'm dependent on him, and I show gratitude to him by giving over and above. Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 talks about the various different offerings in the scripture. We're not going to get into all of that, but it's acknowledging that sometimes those offerings were gratitude. Some of them were for sins. Some of them were for other different means. But they were over and above the tithe, which automatically went to the Levites and those who were poor. Here, when we tithe, it's a proactive, we give 10% to the church. That's how we live. 
And then when it comes to the offering, it's anything over and above. So gifts for Jesus, this is a beautiful time of year to give an offering and over and above as a reactive giving in order to bless those who are far from us geographically so they would be close to God relationally and eternally. So let's continue on. We've just got a couple of minutes left. So this is what Jesus does. He takes an Old Testament teaching. He gets to the heart of the manor. Then he calls us to wholehearted devotion. He reveals that we underestimate our badness and we overestimate our goodness, and then he calls us to build our houses upon the rock. He shows us the gaps, and then he offers to help us build our foundation upon him where there is no gap. So third final question, what does wholehearted devotion look like with our money? Notice that the tithe and offering is not where I'm putting wholehearted devotion because it's not about that specifically, that would be like me saying, hey, let's become new Pharisees. We could be called to it, but it's about the heart inside what's underneath the surface that matters according to Jesus. What does wholehearted devotion to God with our money look like? Let's close out this section in Matthew 6, verses 22 through 24. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't partially serve both. You cannot serve both God and money. Why? Because if we think that money is our security, can we ever truly find our security in God? If we think that money is the only way we could have enjoyment rather than tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, can we ever surrender our things to God? If we think money is where we get our status and our value, do we think that our value is only what we can own here and then realize that we can't take any of it with us? You don't see, as another pastor mentioned, you don't see hearses with U-Hauls attached to the back. We cannot take our stuff with us. If we think that money is our control, can you see you cannot give control of your life to money and give control of your life to God? These are mutually exclusive. Either or, not both and. So this word, uh, healthy, in verse 22, has been throwing me for a loop this week. Um, I've, you know, I've preached on this passage before. I've seen different Um, translations before. Um, And as some of you may know, last year I took a whole eight weeks of Greek in a row, so I feel like I know nothing. But um, what I look at here is I'm like, okay, like let's look at the Greek and let's figure out what this word means. So here are some of the examples of what, when you see the word translated healthy in verse 22, here are some of the things it says. That word could be um, simple. It could be sincere. It can be healthy. It can be clear, it could be generous, it could be single. You're like, this is a lot. This word is holding a lot of different things. And so because I've been able to go to grad school and I have a professor who is very gracious, I asked him, I was like, can you help me? Like, what, how do you translate this word? Like, what does this look like? I've seen six or seven different words that could be tied to this one word. And this is an important thing to, to be aware of. What Jesus is saying is if your eye is sincere or your eye is generous or your eye is singular or your eye, like, what does it mean? So here's, he gave me a, a, a couple of resources here. So first thing I want to communicate is this. If our eyes are healthy, we see clearly and with a single focus or without astigmatism. If the eyes are diseased or bad or evil, they, will be even, they may even be cross-eyed or cock-eyed. We see double and confuse our vision. We keep one eye on the hoarded treasure and roll the other proudly up to heaven. We see double. Some of you know that um, I have a, a progressive eye disorder situation called keratoconus. Long story short, Your corneas, most of you, your corneas will be rounded. Mine have become conical. And so if you were to look at my glasses, you would see that my left one looks normal, but my right one's more severe. So if you tilted my lenses this way, uh, my right lens looks like a half pipe when it comes to snowboarding or skating. It's just very curved. And so what it means is that I don't see things clearly. 
And if I were to especially cover my right, uh, my left eye, excuse me, and try to only see with my right, things would be blurry. I've showed this picture before, but it illustrates the point. This is what someone with 20-20 would see if for some reason they were um, standing head on with a bunch of taxi cabs in Times Square. Like, I don't know why you would do that, but if you did, you'd be able to see more clearly, you'd be able to see the signs, you'd be able to read things. You know, it looks beautiful, looks great. Here's an example of what it looks like with keratoconus, that same picture. You could still see general things, like you know that this is a car, but you can't read it, it's blurry. So when I take my glasses off, I see halos, not around people, but around lights, um, and things are unclear. And so I wear these to help correct or to help with my vision. If your eye is diseased or, or keratoconic, or if your eye has a problem with astigmatism, you do not see clearly, you see double. This is the point that we're trying to get out here. So the definition that uh, my professor said from a resource says this, go to the next slide, says, the idea of healthy is to being motivated by singleness of purpose so as to be open and above board. So have your focus not be this, one eye hoarded on earth and one eye proudly to heaven, but to have it be united, single, one focus. Example would be single without guile, sincere, or straightforward. My professor also um, has written a commentary, and so he, wrote it, he put it this way when he talked about it. He said, the image of the healthy eye as single conveys the sense of single-focused devotion to God versus wealth. In addition, it may be understood as generous with one's possessions because of the related words for generosity, which can be found in Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 8, um, and James 1. The generous good eye contrasts with the evil eyes that is greedy and jealous of others' possessions. In fact, then I looked in the James 1 passage and I looked at the word and the description there and said this word means generous or wholehearted. So we're talking about a wholehearted life today. A life that when we look at things and we see how God has called us to live, it includes our finances. Finances aren't the things that we get to hold on and keep control of for ourselves. Our finances are part of how we are holy and fully devoted to God. An important one, according to Jesus, but not the only one. Two closing quotations. We're rounding third, coming home, so stay with me. It says this, Who we are and whatever we have is from him and for him. When set in that light, sacrificial giving, notice there's not a specific percentage. Us, we do our standard at 10% as a tithe. Anything else could be over and above, to the, to, away from the church, 10% to the church. But again, we're not following after you. We're just calling where we're looking at what God has here for us. But when set in that light, sacrificial giving, contingent upon your income, whatever that looks like, is no longer a trial or something to be avoided. We don't have to tithe, friends. We get to tithe. We don't have to give sacrificially. We get to give sacrificially out of what God has given to us. Instead, it's something to be embraced, knowing it will draw us closer to Christ. This is not works righteousness. We don't earn our way into heaven because God cannot be bribed. We, no sacrificial giving from a sincere heart. Remember, sincere is one of those definitions for that word healthy in Matthew 6. A sincere heart is a response to God's grace, and it signals a desire to take up the cross of Christ. It's saying this, friends, when we give sacrificially, we are doing so in the image of of how God gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That we have a God that we could not outgive him if we tried. Because he's so generous. And he's given us so much. We cannot outgive God, but he loves it when we try. Not because he needs our money to survive, but because what it does for us to show us that our hearts can be aligned with him and that his treasure is what we want to put our heart and soul into as well. So the final quotation is this from Dan Slagle. When God sacrificed Jesus on our behalf, he not only secured our salvation, but also provided a pattern for Christian living. He expects we will make significant sacrifices on behalf of who? Lost people. A sure sign of a sacrificial heart is loving as he loves and valuing what he values, 
Through sacrificial giving, we can demonstrate to ourselves, the world, and to God that our heart is with people. When you give to the church, when you give your tithe, it funds the various ministries that God has called us to. It funds our missionaries because as a church, we give a tithe of your offerings to our missions. So when you give and you tithe to the church, the church tithes to give to our missionaries and people from across this world, people who are lost and far from God, are able to experience ministry and resources and the power of the gospel through your generosity. So I'm not talking about how we have to give sacrificially right now. I'm offering an invitation to remember that we get to give. I'm offering an invitation to place our dependence fully on God, that, his, that the 90% we have after we tithe He's more faithful with 90 than we can be with 100. I'm offering an invitation so that we can understand what it's like to get to the heart of the matter so money no longer has a hold on us, that we could serve God wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our sermon and our service today. And Lord, I know that as we talk through money and we talk through these topics, it can be difficult, but... Lord, we also know that, Jesus, you never shied away from difficult topics, so nor should we. But, Lord, we also know that you gave so much, and so should we. Lord, I pray that as um, what, whatever was shared, Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would take the words um, that we shared today and that you would shape them to be exactly what we need to hear, that it's not emotional manipulation, but it's the idea that, God, we want to be invited into living the lives of generosity that, Jesus, you laid out for us. And we want to help with people who are far from you to come to know you by living a life that is wholehearted, singular focused on your purposes not on our purse strings. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.